Okay, today is April the 5th, 2012, and we'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion, a few moments of silent prayer, the option of rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word that lives and abides forever. We thank you that is alive and powerful. And it can even penetrate into the hardest stony heart and be able to help those who have embraced Satan's lie to see your truth. So we pray that you will help us to focus and concentrate this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I told you last uh, time that remind me about <coughs> something about this Friday. Well, it says on my calendar here, Good Friday. This also says uh, Passover begins at sundown is what this says on my calendar. Uh, this is sometimes known as Holy Week. And it started actually uh, about 40 days ago when on the liturgical calendar they were uh, observing Lent. Uh, we don't observe that because it's, I can't tell you what I think about Lent. It uh, stinketh as far as I'm concerned. It's uh, where a lot of people, uh, they're trying to be holy, they're trying to be acceptable to God, but they're trying to do it on their own works, and you can't do that. Uh, they have all these things that really amount to penance, and they have um, Sunday, Palm Sunday. Uh, Palm Sunday is, is celebrated today, but I doubt that there's many who understand that uh, Palm Sunday was really, uh, it was good that Jesus Christ was coming into Jerusalem to present himself. And the people were seeing, saying Hosanna in the highest and celebrating, but they were celebrating the wrong thing. Because when they were singing Hosanna, well, I guess we could just turn our Bibles to it. They were actually quoting from Psalm 118. If you'd like to turn there, I'll show you. Of course, I've told you before, Psalm 118 is actually in the middle of your Bible. It is the chapter that is in the middle. Uh, it's the chapter that's in the middle of your entire Bible. And, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 8 of Psalm 118 is the verse that's in the middle of your Bible. Interestingly, it says it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. That is sage advice. Of course, Psalm 117 is the shortest chapter in the Bible. And then the one after 118, Psalm 119, is the longest chapter in the Bible. A lot of coincidences, huh? But we're looking at 
Psalm 118. And I want you to look at verse 22. Verse 22 and 23 has to do with the first advent. In fact, I would put a parenthesis around those two verses and put first advent. It says, The stone which the builders rejected, and what is that stone? It's Jesus Christ, has become the chief cornerstone. This, referring to the cross, I have a little cross there with symbol where it's talking about this, it is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. That's referring to the first advent. Now, verses 24 through 26 is referring to the second advent, so you could put a little parentheses there. Starting with verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We sing that sometimes. It's okay that we sing it, but what we recognize is the Bible is talking about the day is the second advent when Jesus Christ returns to set up his millennial kingdom. Verse 25 says, O Lord, do save. At least that's what the New American Standard says. And where it says, do save, the Hebrew word there is yasha na. That's Y-A-S-H, Y-A-S-H-A, yasha and that is means to save. Jesus Christ's name means to be means savior, which is Yahshua. This is Yahsha, and Na. The next word there is now, so it means save now. So verse 24 talks about Jesus Christ returning, and they're saying, "Save now, we beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, do send prosperity." Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Second Advent. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Talking about this is in context the Millennial Temple. So, what they were singing here, are, are what it was designed to be. This this is to be designed to be sung. You know, the Psalms are songs. It was designed to be sung at the Second Advent. So now we want to we want to turn over to Matthew. I think it's around verse twenty one. Let's see. Verse twenty one. I mean uh, chapter twenty one. Yeah, um, chapter 21, start with verse 6, Matthew 21, 6. And the di- uh, disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid them their garments Laid, their, uh, laid on them their garments on which he sat. Most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Now, this is when Jesus Christ was coming into Jerusalem. The fact that he was going to ride a, a colt, a young, a young uh, donkey, in 
was prophesied. I believe it was in uh, Zechariah. They were putting branches out. They were putting branches because Jesus Christ was... Actually, the branch is a title for the Messiah. He was going to come from the line of Jesse. And um, that is given in, in Isaiah. <clears throat> I don't want to go too far in this, though, but... Uh, you can't hardly go through it without giving you some more information. The fact that in Daniel chapter 9, it says from the time of a decree that we find in Nehemiah chapter 2, it was from uh, Artaxerxes Germanus, it was going to be 300 and, uh, 483 years. And Jesus Christ came uh, until Messiah the Prince. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 9. In 483 years to the day, Jesus Christ was riding into Jerusalem on a colt that was prophesied, and they were putting branches in his way, showing, I mean, before him, uh, designating that he was Messiah. And this is what they were saying, according to verse 9. The multitudes going before him and those who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of it comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna is the Greek rendering of Yashana. They were saying Hosanna, and it was from the Hebrew Yashana. So they were saying save now. What they wanted was to be saved and delivered from the Romans. Uh, they didn't understand. They wanted the kingdom then. That's what they were singing. They says, Hosanna, save us now. And so what they were singing was not dispensationally correct. They wanted the, to Christ for Christ to take the crown without the cross. So there's a lot there just in this Palm Sunday. And the people who, how many people that observe Palm Sunday know that little tidbit that I just gave you? Uh, they just, I don't know, I've never celebrated Palm Sunday, so I don't know what they do. But... Um, in any case, and then, and then tomorrow is uh, Good Friday. And Good Friday is supposedly when Jesus Christ was crucified. The only problem is, I don't know how you get three days and three nights between Friday afternoon and Sunday early morning. You just can't hardly squeeze three days and three nights. And that's significant because Christ said, as the Jonah, the prophet Jonah said, that he, as Jonah was in the, the body of the great whale or fish, Three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the ground, in the tomb, for three days and three nights. And everybody will show up and they'll celebrate Good Friday. And those uh, inconsequential facts, I guess, doesn't seem to matter. The same, main thing is that you feel good and that you get all your liturgy in and then you're good to go, I guess. So that's what I was going to tell you about Good Friday. Um, I'm not trying to make fun of anyone. I'm just saying we need to know why we do what we do. If you don't know why, it's just ritual without reality. It means nothing. It might make you feel good. Other people may be impressed. But we want to know why we do what we do. And we want to do, do a right thing in the right way. So we're going to continue now with our getting the gospel right. And we're going to just kind of fly through some of the things that we went over last time. But it's very, you know, if you hear it twice, 
shouldn't hurt your feelings because the first time you hear it, you kind of you, you you're digesting it, you're getting it to where you kind of understand it, and, and it's not till you hear it again and maybe another time after that to where you're really able to articulate what the Bible is saying about. Uh, in this case, we're talking about uh, how to deliver the truth of God's Word. And we were talking about lordship salvation, and all this is essentially saying is that the difference between lordship salvation and what I would call the biblical truth is not just a thing of semantics. It's not just a thing that is not all that important. It's very important. Lordship salvation, remember, is when people believe that you had to add something other than faith in order to be saved. But my contention is is that you add anything to faith in order to be saved and you're not saved because it's only given as a gift and if you try to work for it, you don't receive it because God only gives it as a gift. I like some of the old hymns, uh, the old rugged cross. I, even We haven't sung this in, in a long time. I don't know if we've ever sung it or not. Just as I am. Now, that's a great hymn. I just heard it about ten, ten zillion times, and uh, it, I got kind of war, it kind of got a little worn for me. But it, it's just as I am. You don't bring anything to the cross. Here you are, your old stinking self, and the only thing that you depend upon is God's grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's nothing wrong with those things. But uh, lordship salvation says that you have to make Jesus Lord. You have to have a commitment and a whole grocery list of things that you have to do. And that's what we were talking about here, but this is where I want to get to right now is uh, don't argue. When you're talking to someone about it doesn't matter whether it's the gospel, it doesn't matter what type of doctrine it may be, whenever you start arguing with someone, you're on a downhill uh, course of destruction. You're, you're, you're not helping yourself at all. You're not helping them. The reason is because they get on their defensive. What they see when you start arguing with them, when they say, yes, it is, and you say, no, it's not, and they say, yes, it is, and you say, no, it's not, I mean, that's really not going to get you very far. And that literally happens all the time. And what they see it is as a competition. Oh, you're saying that I'm wrong? Well, <laughs> we'll see about that. And they're, not, they're no longer open. They're no longer... Uh, seeking information, they're trying to win a debate. And that's not how, it's just not very conducive to uh, being able to converse with people and them accept what you're, what you're giving. He puts up the defense, either it's an impenetrable wall that he's not, you've insulted him or her, and he's not going to listen to anything you say. Now, he, he, might, he might be listening but not hearing. You know what I'm talking about? He says, in his mind, or he's thinking, I wish this person would quit droning on so I get on about my business. Or they might do another thing. They might say, okay, you want to argue? Well, let's get it on. And nothing that you say is going to penetrate because they're trying to win. That's what happens when you start arguing. A lot of people uh, foolishly think that when you win an argument, the person is going to accept the gospel. All you've got to do is argue them down, show them you're just going to be a better debater. And you're going to just win the argument. And if you win the argument, you're going to win the soul, and that is not so. 
You can win the argument and lose a soul. And usually that's what happens. So we have to be careful not to do that. It makes it it harder to save people like that because no one likes to be told that they're wrong, they're insulted. And some people have hair triggers on certain issues because they've been yelled at and ridiculed by believers. And so if if you run into someone that has has had of falling out with a Christian about whatever issue it may be, they're carrying around a bruise on their soul. And whenever you start to talk to them about this issue where they're already bruised, they're going to be completely turned off. you, you, You wonder why sometimes people will just be adamant. I mean, they'll be cordial, and all of a sudden they get all tight, and they're all tense, and they're ready to do a conversational battle, and you wonder what happens. Well, you might have hit one of those uh, trigger points where they have been insulted, they've been hurt, and the last thing they're going to do is to give in again and the, it's, it's tempting for them to, uh, well, sometimes they won't even talk to you at all or else they're ready to argue. Now, here's the thing. Use discernment. I might change this because I think um, the more modern term that I was trying to use here is methodology. In other words, when you're talking to someone uh, about truth, whether it's the gospel or something else, you need to use a method that is going to be more effective. You just don't go in without a plan. You go in understanding that this is not going to always be so easy. In fact, most of the time it's not easy at all. And I go into here and I'm talking about people who uh, have preconceived ideas. Christianity, by the way, is not popular these days. Maybe it never was, but certainly on a, they're getting less popular all the time. If you tell someone you're a Christian, they already have preconceived ideas in their mind. They've been watching the Nut Channel. And they see these people, and they're all berserko on the TV, and they're looking at that, and they say, is that real? Th- those people are insane. And they don't want to have any part of it. So when, when they identify you as a Christian, you don't necessarily have to have a name tag. You don't even have to say it. But when you start talking about Jesus Christ, the Bible, God, whatever it may be, they identify you as a Christian and they think, well, I can't believe anything this person says because they're one of those nut jobs. People think that all the time. And <clears throat> they are. if you talk about your church, just around to the church, Somebody might have a, a really bad taste in their mouth about churches because they've been to churches, and at churches most of the time done you for money. They get into your business. Uh, they, they just are not all that pleasant to be around from, a, from the perspective of someone who just comes in. Let me say this at this point, though. When we have visitors that come in here, they ought to at least be made welcome. We don't have to pry into their business. Certainly we're not going to dun them for money. But we need to say, hi, how are you doing? Glad to have you, if nothing else. If I went into a church and nobody talked to me, chances are I wouldn't go back to that church. And I know we all have people we want to talk to and all, but when you see a visitor, you need to put your big smile on and go to them and make them feel at home. You don't have to, you don't have to ask them uh, any questions that might be invasive. Just let them know, hey, we're glad you're here. But some people think all churchgoers are hypocrites. And that's not true. 
Maybe most of them are, but not all of them. And by the way, churches aren't the only place you find hypocrites either. Anyway, is it? I've seen people make a big deal about, yeah, I go to church and they're hypocrites. Okay, oh, fine. Well, I agree with you. Where can you go and not find hypocrites? Hypocrites are everywhere. And that's just an excuse that they don't have to go. They don't have to be accountable to God, so they think that that's, that's a good plan. So most people are either going to want to argue with you or they're going to want to just change the subject. Now, perhaps the greatest reason that it's hard to reach people about the Bible, about spiritual matters, is because they're ignorant of the spiritual matters. I mean, they really don't know what's going on when it comes to the Bible, God, Jesus Christ, anything. They might not even know the difference between the Old Testament and New Testament. And when you say something about the Bible, you say something that's spiritual, they think, uh-oh, I, I have nothing to contribute to this conversation. And if I start talking, this person is going to know that I don't know anything. And that's, people don't like that. They don't like for their ignorance to show. So they usually will just try to change the subject. By the way, what do you do when someone changes the subject? Yeah. I mean, if I'm talking, if I ask somebody a question about the Bible and they start talking about the Astros, I'm not going to talk about the Astros until first I find out, hey, we didn't leave this other deal yet. I just asked a question, you ignored it. What's the deal? I mean, you can say whatever you want to, but um, that's their main tactic is they're just going to uh, change the... By the way... It, it, it's not easy to talk to people about spiritual matters these days. And for all these reasons, all the preconceived ideas that they have, but there's one way to get through all of that and not even have to worry about it. And that is through... See, I have this little blank. Do you know how to cut through all this and reach people? Two words. Ask questions. Hey, when you ask a question, the ball's in their court. You're not trying to tell them anything. You're asking them something. And, and you don't have to worry about them saying, I don't believe what you believe because you're not telling them what you believe. You're asking them what they believe and why. And by doing that, you get them to think. And, you know, people don't think these days, especially on their far independently. They, they don't have independent thoughts. They just try to think like everybody else thinks. And... They think about, well, they probably have, so many people have never even thought about why do I believe what I believe? Now, they know to at least some extent what they believe, but why do they believe it? And you ask them that and then wait. Don't ask questions and start talking, by the way. You don't start talking until after they answer the question, and then it's based on what they said. So what if they say they don't want to talk about Jesus' salvation or spiritual things? What can you do? What would you say? Don't say it, but what would you say? One word. Why? Why is that off limits? What's the big deal? I mean, where is it written that you cannot talk about these things? I would think they're important. Now, don't come across forceful, demanding, but you're like curious. You know, if you... You better tell me why. Now, it's, not, it's not about forceful things because when you're too forceful, they're going to back away. What you want to do is engage them. You want to start talking to them 
and, and, and have a conversation with them. It shouldn't be just one way, either, either way. But when you, when you do that, uh, by being curious, they're more apt to answer your question. And then we have the practical outworking of lordship salvation. We went through these. Uh, witnessing for Christ is not talking without listening. Christians tend to talk when they should be listening to discover what the non-Christian is thinking and what he believes. How can you witness to someone? How can you talk about the Word of God to someone and you don't even have a clue what they think? That's not a good plan. So you might, before you even start saying what the Word of God says, ask them, what do they think about it? What do you think about, I don't know, give me an issue, any kind of issue. Preferably a, conver- a con- controversial one. Abortion. Okay. So you might say, well, well uh, what do you think about abortion? And they might say, well, I'm all for the women's rights. If they said that, you know what I'd say? What is that? What does women, women's rights mean with regards to abortion? I want to know what they're thinking. Because you know what? They might not have ever thought that. They heard someone else say it sounded good, so they, they just use it. You want them to think. It's not a debate. It's not a competition. You want to really find out where they're coming from. And then once they give you the information, if it doesn't line up with the Bible, then you can ask questions. You might ask them, well, do you have any idea what the Bible says about that? You're asking questions. And it, it, it's not as hard as it may seem because when you're talking to someone and they say something, and usually it's not going to be right. It might be all wacko and weirdo. But you're going to say, okay, well, where did you come to that conclusion? How, how, how did you come to believe that? And you don't want to be demeaning. You just want to be curious. You can't lose by being curious. I could say you could just act dumb, but that might be offensive to you, but it works. People love to straighten out dumb people. And you're luring them in. Yes, I'm, I'm Johnny Dumbbutt. I don't know anything. It's all new to me. And so you start asking them questions, and they start elaborating. They go on and on. And if you ask the right questions, it's going to lead them right to the gate to where they're going to be stumped. Because what they believe doesn't make sense if it's not biblical, and you're helping them to see that. Uh... Oh, here's one. <laughs> During the course of uh, some religious discussions, an unbeliever might say, I believe all you have to do to go to heaven is keep the golden rule and the Ten Commandments. The Christian does not have to disagree. In fact, don't disagree. Not at that point. If you, get, if you disagree, what's it going to wind up? An argument. It's, it's going to get on the wrong side. At this point, but but may help the non-Christian think his way through uh, to the truth, saying, that is an interesting point of view. Interesting. How did you like the cookies that I baked? They're all burnt. You know, those are very interesting cookies. After an appropriate pause, the Christian might then ask the non-Christian, by the way, how are you doing? How are you doing on keeping those Ten Commandments and living by the Golden Rule? Are you keeping the Golden Rule and Ten Commandments? The honest non-Christian 
Well, it meant that he is not doing very well. Then the Christian might add, well, that is why Christ died. Isn't that a great lead-in? He died to pay for the penalty, uh, the penalty for, for the times that we do not keep the Golden Rule of Ten Commandments. That was on a, a Schaefer journal there. Now, here's the, here's a good one. I, I just... I, I, get, I have a strike when I say this, you know, knock down all the pens. I'll, I'll bowl everybody over with this one, I think. We need to listen to people without interrupting them. Oh, it's so hard to do. Somebody's out there and they're spouting out all of this false doctrine and you know it's false and you want to just give them the whole thing and you just got to go, mm, nothing. You don't say, you want to let them get it all out. You want to hear all this. And the temptation is to say, oh, wait a minute. No, 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 that's not right. When you do that, just if you have to, do that. Both hands. What's that about? I'm just trying to learn to keep my mouth shut. Go ahead. If that's what it takes, don't interrupt. The whole point is to get them talking. So the temptation is to uh, straighten out false doctrines and misconceptions. But don't do it. Hear them out. We not only need to find out what they believe, usually they can come across with something, but why they believe what they believe. That's where we want to get down to. Some people are good at expressing what they believe, but really never thought about why they believe it. And it might be just ask, just talking to somebody, oh, well, you live around this area? Yeah, well, I do. You go to church here? Uh, well, yeah. What church you go to? Well, I go to Lutheran Church down the way, yeah. Well, wh- what do they teach? About that, about by that time, they're starting to fade. Well, uh, they teach the Bible. Oh, yeah? Well, what do they teach about Jesus Christ? I mean, you can just start asking them questions, and you're just talking to them. Eventually, uh, or it could be something in the paper. Um, I noticed there was a christening last week at your church. Did you go? Well, yeah. Well, how was it? Fine. Well, what was it all about? I, I, I tell you, I was uh, working with a guy one time, and he he filled in at a Lutheran church, and I asked him. He went and, and he sang, and he was the official at the christening, and he came back to work. And he was telling us about it. I said, "Well, what was it all about?" And he said, "Well, we did this and we did that." No, I said, "What was the purpose of? What was it for?" And he stopped and he looked at me so curious. He said. Well, I don't know. I'm no baptismal expert. That's what he said. And he was the officiating. Now, if he didn't even know why they were there or why they were doing it, what do you think the people were doing? Oh, they were having a good time. So we want to not be obtrusive, but we want to find out why do you believe what you believe? Or where did you get that idea? Why? Just be curious. You can't go wrong by being curious. If they shut up, if they say shut up, it's none of your business. Why? <laughs> okay, new ground here. It's important to understand what they believe, so you can pinpoint your response to exactly where the problem is without going off on rabbit trails that would confuse the issue. I mean, if you don't know what they need to hear, where they might be off in regards to the gospel and you talk for 20 minutes on something, it's not even, you're not scratching where they itch. And the only way that you can do that is ask questions, find out what they believe. 
if they profess to be Christians, ask them how their, in this case, false perspective lines up with the Bible. I mean, they might tell you that uh, you have to be baptized and repent of your sins and go to church in order to be saved. And by that time, you're already probably going like <laughs> wherever long it takes them to get it out. So, ask them, well, where did you get that idea? What is it that, what, what, for instance, they might say uh, it's in the Bible. And if they, they say in the Bible, what are you going to say? Where? <laughs> and chances are very slim that they're going to give you a verse. Well, it, it, it's in there somewhere. You, have you ever seen it? It's always... Their hand, it, 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 even if they don't have a Bible, it's in there somewhere. Like this. Seems like somebody got aside and taught them how to do this. It's in there somewhere. Now, here's an example. For instance, if someone says people must produce good works to be saved, I don't have that there, but it should be there, saved. You might ask them where they got the idea. If they say the Bible, of course, you ask where. Uh, if they give a passage that has been taken out of context, ask them, ask them to explain the verse. Explain the verse so you can show them the contradictions uh, that they use to substantiate their false doctrine. I know I'm not reading it the way it is, but it's not worded very well. I made changes and it didn't show up on this yet. In other words, what you're going to do, here's the example. Let's say they say you have to have good works in order to be saved. And you say, where did you get that idea? And they say, well, James 2.17. Here's James 2.17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Now, what are you? if they said that, are you just going to quote another verse? What are you going to say when they quote James 2.17? Faith without works is dead. What, what would you do? Now, remember, they're asserting that you have to have good works in order to be saved. I would, I would ask them, okay, I understand you gave me the verse, but what does it mean? What are you saying that it means? And you know what? Chances are they're going to have a hard time articulating to you what that means because in James 2.17, even so, faith, if it has... No works is dead being by itself. Do you see salvation in there anywhere? And I might, you know, I want to know. You might ask them, well, what does that have to do with salvation? Chances are they won't be able to tell you. They might be befuddled. They might not know. But just don't go to another verse. Ask them what you want to do. I don't care what verse it is, what it's covering. You want to know what their explanation of it is. How do they understand that verse? Because just because they give you a verse does not mean that they understand what it means. I found that out talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. He was t trying to sell me some literature, and I said, I don't want to hear about that. I said, what I want to know is, can you lose your salvation? Oh, yes. And I said, where would you get that idea? He said, in the Bible. And I said, where? And he goes, you know, I don't. I think they have some kind of glossary or something in their Bible. And he drug up some kind of verse. It didn't have anything to do with, with, with uh, losing salvation. And he quoted it to me. And I said, well, he read it to me. I said, okay, well, that's fine, but that doesn't answer my question. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I don't see salvation. I don't see uh, losing it. I don't see anything in this verse. And he knew it. All I'm saying is just put it in their court. 
any, you want them to defend something that is indefensible because they don't have the truth. And so you ask them to explain how that harmonizes with the verse that seems to contradict it. And then you could give them Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which you don't even have to go to your Bible with. You don't have to have your Bible. You can say it because you all know it. And when you do that, you can say, okay, and you know what I do when I've done this in the past? I look really confused. I, was it Columbo? <sighs> oh, man. I, I, what's the matter? Well, I don't know. I just can't understand. So, well, what is it you can't understand? Well, there's another verse in the Bible. And, 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 it's, and it's, I think, it, yeah, it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. And I quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I said, you see my problem? I mean, you, you say that I have to have works, and this says you didn't have works. Well, what's, the, what's, what's the deal? You know, you're, you're, you're just discombobulated. You don't understand. You're not arguing. Let him figure it out. Because if you try to figure out and you tell him, he's just going, oh, no, no, I don't believe that. No, no, I don't believe that. He doesn't even understand what you're saying. So have them try to solve the puzzle. Remember when we went over James I talked about that? And when they can't, and, and by the way, it's not solvable if you're taking James 2.17 as salvific. It, you can, it's, a, it's a contradiction. And so when he can't figure it out, he can't, solve the contradiction, then you might, you know, I can understand, I can, maybe there's one way I can understand that this is not a contradiction. Maybe James 2.17 isn't, isn't even talking about eternal salvation. You see what I'm talking about? You're not arguing. You're trying to solve a, a problem that he's brought up. Of course, there comes a time when Believers need to give pertinent information to those who, who they're witnessing to or discuss some kind of doctrine. The best time to do this is when they start asking questions. Okay? When they start asking questions, usually, unless they're just argumentative and they're trying to stump you, and that happens sometimes. But you can usually tell by their demeanor and by their attitude if they really want to know answers. Now, when they start asking questions and they really want to know some answers, you, that's time to quit asking questions and start giving some info then. The best time to do this when they ask questions, it's, a great, it's great when they ask questions, but even then we must be careful not to give them more information than they want or can handle. Just remember, usually the less you say, the better. They can only hold a teaspoon to a half a cup of truth. That's a lot to somebody that doesn't have any. And when you start, if you think you're on a roll, and they're saying, oh, yeah, okay, I, I kind of understand that. And then you say, well, yeah, but let me tell you something else. Let's go into spiritual gifts. And you might have hit a stump then. I mean, they may be big tongue speakers. I don't know. And you might have had them already, and they're ready to accept the gospel, and then you go on to something else, and it might undo what you've already done. It's just like in sales. I keep going back to sales because once you made the sale, once you've closed the deal, shut up unless they have questions. It's easy to feel, man, I'll just push the envelope a little bit. I'll see how much they can take. No. Just, and the Holy Spirit will help you 
to manage all this. Make sure they understand what you're saying, especially if you use theological or spiritual terms they might not be familiar with. So if you, we, we talk to each other and we use technical spiritual nomenclature and think nothing about it because we are among believers who are not spiritually ignorant. They have connected the dots, at least to a large degree, and they're able to use spiritual, technical vocabulary, but most people cannot. They haven't developed a, a spiritual vocabulary because they're still in kindergarten. If you talk, start talking about uh, the hyperstatic union, or if you start talking about even the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I doubt that you will ever be able to use that without explaining it to somebody. And you might ask them, do you, do you know what that term means? If, if it's, they don't get offended. Don't try to impress them with your biblical vocabulary, your knowledge of the Bible. Keep it simple. I've heard people before that there are certain churches that have developed their own very technical vocabulary, and that's fine. And they use it among each other, and that's fine. But when you go outside that church and people start hearing vocabulary that they've never heard before, they're just going to, they're not interested. You, you have to make it clear, simple, so they can understand it. It's best to talk to people about spiritual matters in private, if possible. It's embarrassing for some people to discuss religion, in quotation marks there, around other people. They're worried about what others think about them, and it's hard for them to concentrate. They may be under conviction of the Holy Spirit, but they don't want anyone to know it. So if, you're, if you have a chance to talk to someone about anything that is of a spiritual nature, be considerate. And if you can talk to them privately, alone, you're probably going to have better results. Because I've talked to people before, and it was, even, it was just one-on-one, -on -one, but there were other people over here, and I could see every once in a while when I was talking to them, they'd cut their eyes over there like, are those people looking? Are those people, what do they think? You know, and they, they start doing that number. You've got to read body language. You've got to find out what they're interested in. And when, you know what I did when they did that? As I was talking to him, I just started walking over this way. I just started walking, walking away from the, from the people. And you know what he did? He just follows. Listen, you can be in control of these situations if you're thinking. When I used to go to the, uh, when I used to have this log home model here, I did sales. One of the things a good salesman will do is qualify people to see if they're really financially able and motivated to buy your product. And I can find out in the first 20 seconds. If I find out somebody is not qualified, I will be cordial to them so you can look around and um, make yourself at home if you have any questions. But some people want to spend the day there and take up all my time. And I don't have time to do that. So you know what I would do? As they were asking me questions and I was talking to them, I'd get closer and closer to the door as we were talking. And by, before you know it, I'm standing right next to the door. And they've never, they've never slowed down. They're talking the whole time. I said, you know what? It was really good having you here as I opened the door. I said, be sure to come back. It was good having you. They said, okay. And they walk out the door. They probably got outside. And thought, How do I wind up here? <laughs> now, I mean, you think, oh, well, that's trickery. No. We have to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. And so you need to read their body language. You need to be very alert. 
Now, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He's guiding us in all this. But we have to think. We can't just stumble up to somebody and say, Hey, believe in Christ. <laughs> another, reason, another reason to try to talk with uh, people in private is because other people may interrupt and change the subject. Have you ever had that happen? You're talking to somebody and you're really making some progress and somebody comes up and they change the subject and it's... You, you, you just can't hardly get it back. So they interrupt and change the subject. Or they might want to argue about a point that isn't even relevant to the conversation. Maybe they want to talk about something else. Or maybe you said something of a spiritual nature that they don't, they don't agree with, but it's really that, not that big a deal. You're trying maybe to give the gospel to this person. Somebody over here heard it, and they're over here, and they're wanting to argue with you about this, this thing you brought up. We have to be able to manage these things because this is the real world. These are the things that happen. Now, every once in a while, you can't get someone in private and it can work to your advantage. I remember I was at a, a Christmas party at somebody's house. Nobody here, don't try to, you don't even know who they are. It doesn't matter. And this one person kind of confronted me about some issue. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was a spiritual issue. And we were, I guess, about from here to the double doors. What is that, about 20 feet away from the main body of people which were in here. And we were discussing a little bit. He was talking. As I was talking to him, I kind of glanced over there. thinking They were conversing. What he wanted to do was argue. Normally, it's best to do it in private. So if you're talking to people and they are harder, um, there is a time to go because what is it that gets us into more trouble than anything nearly little thing wags around in our mouth any doctrines of the people wouldn't be able to keep up Coerce, nag, beg, or badger people. And you might be badgering someone and you might not know it. You think, boy, I'm really imparting some good information. And they're thinking uh, he should have closed it a long time ago. Now, none of those things are necessary because, uh, excuse me, uh, None of these things, talking about the pressure, control, coerce, and so forth. None of those things are necessary because it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, not ours. Our job is to impart the truth of God's Word, and the Holy Spirit takes it from there. We don't have to do anything. You don't have to pull any bags out of there, any tricks out of the bag in order to trick them or do any of these things. You just impart accurate truth, to biblical truth to them, and it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict them. And you know what that does? It takes the pressure off of us. I'm not, I'm, it's time for me to, to uh, just about come to a close here, but I want to tell you this. When you re re realize that whether a person accepts or rejects what you're telling them is not your bag, it's not your deal. You're not responsible for their negative volition. And you're not responsible for them to even understand or to accept what you're saying. 
Even the, the uh, Holy Spirit takes an unbeliever and makes the gospel clear to him. Now, you, you want to be as clear and lucid as you can, but it's not your talent. It's not your ability in speaking to someone else that's going to make the difference. What's going to make the difference is the Holy Spirit using the accurate doctrine that you have given them to convict them of it. If you've done it accurately, you've done your job. And that way you don't have to worry about being rejected because if they reject, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the truth. And we'll see next time that when you've done your job and it was accurate, then it was a job well done. Whether they reject it or accept it, that should be our attitude. Okay. Um, we're about to change gears in this getting the gospel right, getting to, we're going to get on uh, another aspect of it next time. And uh, Easter is what, Sunday? So, um, you ladies, it's okay if you want to wear an Easter bonnet, I guess. <laughs> but not for you men. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful that when we use your word in order to persuade others that it is truth and they can trust it, that the pressure is really not on us. All we have to do is give it accurately. And that we should seek opportunities. We should care enough to engage people, not preaching at them, but just talk to them. Help them to see the light. For the time is short and we live in such a dark society. We pray that you will help us to be that salt and light that can reach out and give your marvelous grace and truth to others. And we pray this in Christ's name.